I'm Scott Paul, and this is the Manufacturing Report. On January 1st, 2021, optimism abounded. COVID-19 vaccinations had begun. Soon-to-be President Biden had promised to bring about transformative infrastructure investment. And domestic manufacturers were seeing a resurgence of consumer interest. Now, since then, we've celebrated some tremendous wins for American manufacturers and workers, but concerns remain. And so ahead of the new year, Team AAM and I are reflecting on the top manufacturing news stories of 2021 and their implications for the coming year. A conversation with my AAM colleagues next on the Manufacturing Report. I am very pleased that Scott Bowes, AAM Senior Vice President for Government Affairs and Policy, and Elizabeth Brotherton-Butch, the Senior Vice President for Communications at AAM, are joining me for this 2021 year-end roundup of the biggest developments in American manufacturing. Beth, Scott, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Scott. Good to be here. Good to be with you. Okay. So I will spoil the list by just telling our listeners what we're going to cover. We're going to finish with China. We're also going to talk about Buy America, supply chain disruptions, infrastructure, and factory openings. There was a lot of meaty stuff happening in American manufacturing in 2021. Some of this was front and center. Some of it obviously wasn't front page news because there was so much else going on from a public health perspective, natural disasters. We got a new president, had you know an insurrection at the Capitol. So it's fair to say that while our listeners may be familiar with some of what we're going to talk about, some of this may be new to them. But let's start with something that I think everybody has experienced, either as a producer, as a consumer, or just as someone who's uh, tuned into the news, and that's supply chain disruptions. And some of these supply chain disruptions started at the very beginning of the pandemic, but they seem to take a different shape in 2021. Beth, what's going on there? Well, if you've been following the news, I'm sure you've seen the horror stories that they put out about how this could affect your holiday shopping. But really, like you said, Scott, the supply chain problem really started way back in 2020. What really happened here, and we could go on about the supply chain issue for hours and hours, so I'll try to sum up very briefly. But what really happened here is the COVID and COVID-related shutdowns really shocked the international trading system and it exposed some big flaws. Now, there's a whole range of issues of why the supply chain is having so many problems, and there's no one thing. It's lots of things. There have been some raw material shortages, which has made it hard for folks to finish making certain products. So if you don't have an input for your product, you have to wait to make your product until that input becomes available. You've had factories just shutting down because of COVID all over the world. So, you know, if COVID rates are high and a a local government decides that a shutdown is necessary, those factories shut down. And that sort of creates a domino effect. Because what kind of happened is there were big shutdowns and everything ramped up. When some of the shutdowns ended, you've had port congestion as companies are trying to get their products to market as quickly as possible, but they're all doing it at the same time. And so the ports are congested. Then you have a trucker shortage where there's not enough truckers available to take the stuff from the ports to the places where you sell it. And then on top of all this, you've seen a huge uptick in demand from consumers. You know, a lot of people are stuck at home. We'll save a little bit more money. They're buying stuff. It's been a tough 
few years, people, you know, want to sort of treat themselves or for whatever reason, we've seen a huge uptick in consumer demand. So all of these things, plus I'm sure our listeners probably have many others, there's been a real shock to the international supply chain and really the whole international trading system. The takeaway, I think, for folks who follow American manufacturing, which I presume is a lot of the folks listening to this podcast, is that it's really highlighted the dangers of making your products overseas. It might have been cheaper for a number of years, but it's also harder when you have a problem, right? Like you can't just hop in your car and drive down to the factory or, you know, at the very worst, hop on a quick Southwest flight and go a couple states over to go to the factory, problem solve, try to see what you can do. If you are making your things halfway around the world, you're just sort of stuck until it can sort of work itself out. And when you know you have stuff stuck in ports, there's nothing you can do about that. You have stuff stuck on trucks, there's nothing you can do about that. So we have started to see a number of manufacturers begin to increase their domestic manufacturing presence, begin to look for closer partners in the supply chain so they don't have these problems. And, you know, another interesting takeaway from this is that you've seen a lot of domestic manufacturers sort of come forward and be like, we're not facing the same sort of challenges that companies that rely on overseas factories are. I just got an email from American Giant, one of my favorite made in USA brands, you know, which they were like, hey, we're well stocked. All of our supply chains here are ready to go to help you over the holidays. So, you know, I think that's a a summary, I know it seemed kind of long, but it's a lot of stuff condensed down. But what COVID really exposed were these flaws that were always present in the supply chain. And now they've just been brought to the forefront. Yeah, Beth, thank you for sharing that. It seems like the system was designed where if everything was working perfectly all the time, they could manage. But if there is a breakdown somewhere because of this kind of hyper-globalization and just-in-time inventories and all of this, it can create a great deal of pain up and down the supply chain and for consumers as well. Something designed to make supply chains run a little more efficiently, Scott Bowes, is infrastructure. And after decades of infrastructure talk in Washington, almost unbelievably, something got done. Tell us what happened. Yeah, Scott, that's right. There is near bipartisan universal agreement that we need a, a good system of roads and bridges and water systems and rail and transit, ports, airports, everything you can think of that's infrastructure. You know, everyone agrees we need it in order to have an efficient economy. But yet it has been perplexing to watch Congress and administrations come and go and just be unable to figure out a way to pass a bill to perform this basic function of government. But good news, uh, yeah, this year, a bipartisan group of members came together in the Senate. They struck a deal with President Biden. They took that back to Congress and ultimately put it to paper, and it passed both the House and Senate and was signed into law in mid-November. So now, they're going to go through the following months and, and years. There's there's dollars to spend on infrastructure. It's very good news for the American economy, including manufacturing. Indeed, it is. So, Scott, what are we talking about here? Because when people think of infrastructure, sometimes it's just roads, bridges, uh, maybe a little transit. But what's the breadth and scope of the coverage of this new investment? 
Well, Scott, it's a $1.2 trillion package overall. Now, some of that spending is just continuing at the levels that we would have spent previously. But what's notable is that there's a $550 billion increase in spending over the duration of the bill. And that is apportioned into a bunch of different categories that I just talked about. It's the largest ever federal investment in public transit, largest federal investment ever in clean drinking water and wastewater. I mean, we've got a water main break in the United States every two minutes, which is insanity. You know, new emerging technologies of clean energy, electrical grid, electric vehicles, broadband, large federal investments, the largest we've ever seen in each of these. And also basic things like bridges, the biggest investment since the interstate highway construction occurred many, many decades ago. So it's a a lot of good things to talk about there. And so... Obviously, in addition to what most people will think, well, this will be great because my commute will be a little better or the airport I'm in will look better or the school my kid goes to or drinking water will be safer. But from a manufacturing perspective, why is having a better infrastructure important for manufacturers? Well, there's two reasons. The first of which is just having an efficient logistics network. It addresses two issues. One, of course, we're always going to have some amount of imports. I think we'd all argue here at AM that we're too reliant on imports. But when you have, you know, functional ports and airports, you know, that is good for manufacturing. Of course, not just for imports, but also for exports. We want to make things and send them to the rest of the world. So having an efficient network for our manufacturers to produce their goods and ship them either to customers throughout the United States or export them throughout the world that's a huge plus. And then the second is that for decades, our infrastructure in the United States has been built by American workers. We have buy America laws that are in place that say that American workers who make iron, steel, and other products, they'll get the first shot at supplying those products. Uh, And oftentimes that's the case. We don't have to use waivers to buy foreign products because American workers, if you give them the chance, they're competitive, they're efficient, and they make great products and all of this new construction and, and infrastructure and all these, these categories I talked about, the benefit to manufacturing is they'll see more demand, more orders to, to produce uh, their products that will go into infrastructure in the United States. Thank you, Scott. Before we close out infrastructure, obviously, there's a lot of things that align to help make this happen, one of which was obviously leadership both from the executive branch and the legislative branch and all the advocates that were pushing for this. And certainly President Biden and Secretary Buttigieg and the team deserve a lot of credit for using the bully pulpit very effectively. And to, I think, kind of pull away the joke of what was called infrastructure week for, for, for years and years. But I know that you work closely with folks on Capitol Hill who are some of the leaders on Capitol Hill who deserve a shout out for getting us to yes on this and getting something signed into law? Well, broadly on infrastructure, there's a lot of members that have long prioritized this. You know, some of the the members that were at the center of, you know, deal making, obviously President Biden himself. And then on the Republican side, you had Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, who, you know, unfortunately, this is uh, going to be his last term. He's retiring at the end of next year. He had a big role in, in building consensus on both sides and, and making sure this got done. With respect to Buy America policy, 
definitely have to throw a shout out to members like Peter DeFazio from Oregon, who is the, the chair on the House side of the Infrastructure Committee. And on the Senate side, members like Senator Brown of Ohio, Senator Baldwin of, of Wisconsin, Gary Peters of Michigan, Mike Brown, a Republican of Indiana, Rob Portman, as I mentioned before, all of these members supplied the, the bipartisan leadership necessary to get this done. So credit to them. Okay, let's shift for a minute back out of Washington and through the landscape of the United States and American manufacturing to new factory announcements. And I call this a trend because we'll see announcements every year, but I don't know that we've ever experienced a year where the breadth and scope of new factory announcements matched what we've seen. And in electric vehicles, you know, we saw General Motors and Ford and Toyota and Rivian and other companies make big announcements of new production facilities in states from Michigan to Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, and more. In semiconductors, because of the shortage in the supply chain disruptions, Beth, we also saw a number of announcements. And I thought that was quite significant as well. We saw Intel announced new factories and uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and Global Foundries and Micron and some others. And so, Beth, I think no one would have imagined two or three years ago that we'd see factory announcements like this coming, it seemed like, every week. Yeah, there have been a whole bunch. And it really seems to me that there's a couple sort of things happening, and it seems like it's really a major turning point. You have the supply chain shortages and all of those challenges, and you have manufacturers, I think, sort of realizing we can't just make everything halfway around the world. We got to have stuff closer, especially critical things like semiconductors, or else our whole production is going to struggle. But also, you have this clean energy and electric vehicle emerging sector, where we know that the auto industry, for example, is going to be shifting to electric vehicles. That is coming. There is a need to address climate change. And you know, automakers know that they're going to have to make this transition. And so you're seeing a lot of factory announcements there. We have General Motors and Ford and a number of other domestic companies really putting a lot of money into investing not only in electric vehicles, but also, like you said, in, in the batteries and the things they need to sort of really power the supply chain. I think that the challenge is going to be moving ahead is really sustaining this. One of the things you know that we saw during the Obama administration is that solar panels were sort of seen as a really big deal and seen as of the wave of the future. And, you know, there were a lot of factory announcements then, but a lot of that production shifted overseas and the solar industry in the United States has been really gutted. And there are a number of reasons for that, but the number one reason is China. China invested heavily into their solar industry while also dumping their products here. So, you know, again, it's really good to see all these factory announcements, but I think if we want to sustain this over the long term, we're going to have to understand that it's not just if you build it, it will be fine. I think, you know, we're going to really have to put some smart policy in place to help sustain this and encourage this over the long term. Completely agree. I think that was one of the lessons of the efforts after the Great Recession, which was too many of them were one-off. They weren't sustained. And the right combination of incentives and market demand weren't well aligned. And so I completely agree. And Beth, 
you also mentioned kind of like having that level playing field. And I right. wanted to talk a bit about a couple of other announcements that we saw in steel. And if you would have, again, asked people 15 years ago, see a new steel mill in the United States, they, they would have laughed. But yet we saw big companies like Cleveland Cliffs open a specialized kind of iron processing facility in Toledo, Ohio. Saw US Steel make an announcement about opening a new electric arc furnace. And they did establish one about a year ago uh, in Fairfield, Alabama as well. We saw Nucor and SDI and other companies make new uh, announcements. And part of that was because of the level playing field that's been created by tariffs and other trade enforcement actions. And I think that's an important policy uh, component that our lawmakers should keep in mind as they're looking to next year as well, is that you need kind of all of that to be sustained. And one of those efforts, Scott Bose, and you touched on this a bit with respect to infrastructure, is this idea of Buy America. And it's really important to have these Buy America provisions in place. And you mentioned infrastructure. And I want to also give a shout out to you, who did an exceptional amount of policy work on this literally over the last decade to ensure that our lawmakers uh, and policymakers knew the benefits of domestic procurement preferences, domestic content preferences, and also kind of how you get these done. But the effort goes much bigger than that. And this White House started out at the beginning of the year, basically saying, we're going to take Buy American seriously. And obviously, there's a lot they've yet to roll out. But what's going on with the Biden administration and Buy America? Sure. Uh, well, I know it's not popular with some, but uh, you know this administration is actually building off of some attention to this issue from the previous administration which talked about the issue a lot of buying American and having our tax dollars buy American. Some of the actions they ultimately took were fairly empty and didn't have a lot of actual thrust behind them. But I, I do want to just give credit for the issue kind of starting there. President Biden, however, has taken it and put some real meat on the bone here with an executive order immediately out of the gate in, in January after he took office that really kind of set the vision for how he wanted to increase these longstanding laws that require government purchases to, to favor American-made products. And throughout the course of the year, a couple of good things have happened. They've, they've created an office within the White House that is focused on made in America. That's since been passed into law, so that'll be there forever. That's a good thing. And they're working on improved transparency of these laws and how the dollars are spent so that the public can very easily look at a website and, and see when dollars are spent that go abroad and where we have not been able to find a domestic supplier. The public you know, really deserves that kind of information on how their tax dollars are spent. Are they going abroad or are they being spent on American made? And then just more broadly going into the future, they're working on what's called a rulemaking process, just fancy speak for you know, the bureaucratic wheels in motion to ultimately improve policies and have a rulemaking process. Again, Congress has backed them up on that. So ultimately, we'll see a stronger definition of what does it mean to be American-made with regard to the, the goods that get preference when tax dollars are spent. So yeah, the Biden administration has really stepped up uh, year one. And going into year two, they've got some unfinished business. And they've also hinted at additional actions. So we'll be uh, keeping an eye on it and, and telling everyone about it along the way. 
Thank you, Scott. There's a lot to look forward to there. And I think you you mentioned something that's important to note is that the issue itself has had good bipartisan support. And so it's good to see the Biden administration building on and in many ways taking more seriously a policy that the Trump administration launched uh, at the beginning of its administration. Some announcements, some fell short, some were more realized in the latter days of the administration. But we seem to see this thread, at least uh, among administrations, taking this ever more seriously as we go by. And that's no small part to the work that you and our allies have done to convince them that this is a job creator, this is a good policy for the United States. So we're going to conclude the top five manufacturing moment list with China. And this is a big topic. And we'll kind of break it down between what the congressional approach has been, what the administration is looking at, and then some of the larger atmospherics. But China has always loomed large for American manufacturing and other issues that we care about. The Biden administration came in, and I think that there had been some hope among the global business community and foreign policy elites that he'd have a dramatically different approach to China than Donald Trump did. Trump's approach was a bit unpredictable. It included tariffs, but also an agreement, included a genocide declaration on the Uyghurs, but other things that they could have done, but uh, left on the table. And so the Biden administration came in with some degree of continuity, maybe a change in tone, but Secretary Blinken, the president himself, others made it very clear that they would cooperate with China when that was possible, but they'd confront them when necessary. And there's a great deal of evidence that's the policy that they have pursued thus far. They've left the uh, China phase one trade agreement in place to this point. They've left the tariffs in place at this point. They're reviewing all of that. And there obviously may be changes to that uh, as we look ahead. Uh, But for now, there's been some stability and probably some additional layers of strategy that have been added on by enlisting more of our allies in these efforts as well. Now, they can be bolstered, obviously, by congressional action. And we talked about infrastructure. Part of that is making America more competitive. Some of the supply chain issues, making sure that we're not as dependent on a country like China for critical national security, public health needs, particularly in a time of crisis. That's certainly at the forefront. But Scott Bose, what has been the congressional response so far to this emerging great power competition between the United States and China? What are some actions uh, that we've seen? Well, Scott, you know, a lot of members, you know, 535 of them between the House and the Senate have a lot of different ideas about how to go about this. And there's certainly been proposals raised over the recent years. A lot of those ideas came together in a bill passed by the Senate in June of 2021 called the United States Innovation and Competition Act, or USICA, as it's often shortened to in an acronym. That bill is uh, aimed at countering China's influence, both here in the United States and abroad through various shifts in our policy and attitudes. Domestically, there are a lot of dollars authorized to rebuild certain strategic sectors like semiconductors, things like drones and wireless broadbands, artificial intelligence, all of the future technology stuff that, you know, in 10 years from now will be just pervasive if it's not already throughout our homes and our lives. China has put a heavy emphasis on trying to dominate those markets. So 
there's dollars in that bill to try to counter it and make sure the U.S. can do it on its own or, or with trusted allies if, if need be. That bill passed in June. The House still has not completed its side of the work. That's still in motion. There's a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes. And, and this is something that we might see come together in the beginning of next year in 2022. The problem is just there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of constituencies. There's dollars at stake, a lot of rules and policies surrounding how they'll be spent, and certainly a lot of constituencies trying to influence it, the least of which ironically is probably China and its uh, proxies here in the United States. So it's a, it's a wild issue to, to track and unclear exactly where it will land. But without a, a deadline, it hasn't passed uh, in this Congress, and it may come to a conclusion early next year. Thank you, Scott, for that. So stay tuned. 2022. Beyond that, Beth, and we talked a bit about some of the economic and trade issues, there's a lot that the administration, that the Congress, that the public, that the global community, that others are concerned about. What are some of the things that you've had your eye on over the last year or with respect to the direction that China and its leadership are headed? Yeah. So, you know, I think from a sort of public perception of China and how the American public and also elite opinion has been of China, sort of the uh, conventional wisdom around China really shifted this year. I, I really believe that, you know, one of the things that we saw happen early on, I think on the last day of the Trump administration, the State Department declared that China's actions toward the Uyghurs constituted a genocide. And a lot of people, I think, sort of thought that the Biden administration might overturn that or might, you know, not uphold that designation because the Biden administration, when they got into office, sort of reversed a lot of what Trump did. But the State Department upheld that distinction and made it clear. So then you had two American administrations who had been polar opposites on many issues, sort of saying in unison what China's government is doing to the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities is a genocide. They're they are trying to strip people of their culture. They're putting them in concentration camps. They are forcing many into forced labor situations. Children are being taken from their families and put into, you know, state-sponsored schools to be indoctrinated. And there was really widespread recognition that this is actually happening and it, it can't be denied anymore. You had a number of international organizations come forth with evidence that this is happening. Um, no longer can you just kind of turn your back on it. Um, that has led to, again, that conventional wisdom sort of shifting. And you've seen more and more steps taken to sort of actually say out loud, what China is doing is bad. And there are a number of things that have happened. One of notes that will certainly come to the forefront in a few weeks is the Biden administration's decision to have a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. That essentially means that the U.S. won't send any diplomatic representatives to the Games. Our athletes will go. And I think that there's concern they don't want this to punish the athletes who train for years and years to go to the Olympics. But the Biden administration is basically saying China needs to know we are unhappy about this. And you've seen other countries come forth and do the same. On sort of a more popular culture front, you've started to see some famous people come out against uh, what has been happening. The The biggest story of, of the last few weeks has been 
with the Chinese tennis player Ping Shui, um, who accused a top Chinese official of sexual assault. She was then had her social media sort of disappeared in, in China. And then there was concern that she had disappeared in China. As a result, there was action taken by the World Tennis Association. I, I don't know the acronym. Um, they basically came out and first they were like, where is she? They, they mounted a very successful social media campaign outside of China, really pressuring China to reveal where she is and where, what did you do with her? Why has she, she not been seen in public? China really fumbled this. They put up a bunch of weird social media posts where they're like, look, here, she's out to dinner and no one bought it. Eventually, the Tennis Association decided just not to do anything in China. They decided to leave China, which I think was a really big turning point where you've, you know, in the past, you've seen, you know, the NBA over in China doing everything to kind of keep the Chinese happy. And now you have another sports league basically saying, we're just not going to play in China. So that, I think, was a turning point. You had also, speaking of basketball, basketball player Inez Cantor plays for the Boston Celtics. He has been very public about what's been happening to the Uyghurs. He has been on TV talking about it. He's been tweeting on social media about it. He's had a number of op-eds in mainstream publications like the Washington Post talking about it. He decorated his shoes, you know, to raise awareness. So there's public pressure coming there. And you've also seen, you know, I think sort of more mainstream journalists talking about this. Jake Tapper tweeted the other day about how, how shameful it is what's happening over there. So there's been a lot of attention because of what's happening to the Uyghurs, to the misdeeds of the Chinese government and really the human rights atrocities that are happening there because of the actions of the Chinese government. The question is, is what happens with American corporations that are operating in China and have become so dependent on both the Chinese market and China to make its products? There have been a number of exits from China this year from American corporations. The biggest two are probably LinkedIn and Yahoo. Both have decided that the censorship they face over there, that the pressure from the government to control information is too much. LinkedIn and Yahoo are both information companies and they need the free flow of information to succeed. And if that's not happening, it's not worth their time to be over there. But it's a, it's a big deal because, you know, you're seeing big names exit China now. You know, a few years ago, everyone was going in trying to tap into the market over there. And now you have companies just coming out and saying, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it to do it over there. Now, the difference is, is that there are companies who are doubling down in China. The two biggest names are probably Apple and Nike. And the difference between LinkedIn and Yahoo and Apple and Nike are that Apple and Nike rely on China for manufacturing. And they are very dependent on selling their products in China as well. There was a story in the information, which is sort of a techie news site a few days ago about how I think back in 2016, Tim Cook, who is the CEO of Apple, uh, signed a big deal with um, the Chinese government. I think it was around $275 billion to keep manufacturing in China. And in return, Apple was given access to the Chinese market. And now the iPhone is, is a big seller there. So Apple doesn't want to really rock the boat there. Same thing is happening with Nike. They depend on China for a lot of their manufacturing needs. And they sell a lot of shoes over there. And they don't want to lose access to that market and access to that labor. Now, I'll just conclude by saying that there was a report that came out last year that tied a number of Western brands to the forced labor that's happening in Xinjiang. And Apple and Nike were both on that list. So 
I think that a lot of American companies might find themselves over the next year or two really having to decide, you know, where they stand. Are they, you know, both Apple and Nike have been big proponents of social justice here at home, and they're going to have to decide, you know, what their values are. Do they care more about, you know, really standing up for the rights of, of people, or do they care more about their bottom line? And I think that that's the question that corporations are going to be facing. Well put, Beth, and thank you so much for that deep overview of just some of the irritants that we've seen. And as we look ahead, I think, unfortunately, that list is only going to grow because if we're looking at cooperation on decarbonization or carbon reduction, the Chinese government sends mixed signals. There's been a lot of belligerence towards uh, Taiwan the dramatic of erosion of civil liberties in Hong Kong, the bullying of other countries like Lithuania that are courageous enough to take a stand that doesn't conform with the views of the Chinese Communist Party. So this is an issue that's going to be with us for some time to come. Yeah. And I'll just just to sort of follow up on that, when you know Apple and Nike and other folks have been pressed on China and why they stay in China. First off, this is the first year I can remember where they've even been asked about this. So that I think signals a sea change. But when they have been pressed this year, they have said, you know, the old line of it is more important to engage. And if we, you know, keep trade open, it will open China's markets and, you know, blah, blah, blah. That argument, people have stopped believing. I think we've seen the actions of the Chinese government over the past 20 years anything, they've become more closed off, they've become more authoritarian. And so, um, you know, the, the U.S. policymakers have a lot of decisions up ahead of how, of how they're going to handle China. But I also think that, you know, American corporations doing business there are going to keep having to, to face these issues. These issues aren't going away. Like you said, they're only getting more and more and more. And the old, you know, if we, if we just engage, it'll be fine. It's, it's, it's not going to fly for very much longer. Indeed. Beth, Scott Bowes, thank you so much for joining me for this year-end roundup of the biggest stories in American manufacturing. And that will do it for the Manufacturing Report this week. If you're looking to stay up to date on the latest manufacturing news in 2022, please be sure to subscribe to our Daily News Digest. You can find more information about this free service on our website, AmericanManufacturing.org. As always, I want to thank AAM staff and Kat Adams in particular for their great work to make this episode possible. And I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for engaging with us and for giving us great episode ideas. Please be sure to subscribe to the Manufacturing Report on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And kindly let us know what you think by leaving a review and a rating. You can find us online at AmericanManufacturing.org. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram, and you can connect with us on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. I'm Scott Paul, and until next time, together we can keep it made in America.